0: As everyone knows, from Canada to, to Europe, it's a it's a mess out there and something has to change. And so therefore the European rules are by no means perfect, and there's a lot of criticism, including my own, that I would level at it, but it's better than anything else we have.
1: Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. The Europeans tend to be miles ahead of us when it comes to tech regulation. Back in 2018, they began enforcing the GDPR, which was a pretty robust piece of data protection and privacy legislation. Nearly four years later, we still haven't managed to pass equivalent laws in Canada or the United States, laws that frankly we desperately need. Now, the EU is looking to expand their regulatory efforts on a pretty massive scale. They have three big policy proposals currently making their way through the European Parliament. The Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, and the AI Act. Hate speech, targeted advertising, market concentration, ethical AI development, it's all in there. And if these three proposals pass, they could radically reshape the internet in Europe. Or they might not. Because even though the Europeans are held up as the gold standard when it comes to tech regulation, the reality on the ground is a lot more complicated. The way that European law interacts with national law is sometimes thorny, especially when some of its member states move towards a liberalism. And the tech lobby is working hard to water these proposals down. So the future of these bills and their potential effectiveness is far from certain. Luckily, Mark Scott is here to help us make sense of all this. Mark is the chief technology correspondent at Politico, and he's been following this story for years. He can unpack exactly what these proposals are trying to accomplish, the hurdles they need to overcome before they become law, and maybe most importantly, whether they'll actually be able to rein in big tech. Here's Mark Scott. Hey, Mark. Hey, how are you doing? Good. I was going to ask where you are. Are you not in London?
0: No, so we're getting our house redone, which means we're in the Mm. countryside for for four weeks, which is nice. And how how are things with you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I was going to say, it's probably a good time to be out of London with uh, your government collapsing and COVID spiking all at the same time.
0: Everything is fine, Taylor. Everything is fine. Nothing is (laughs) wrong.
1: So before we dive into the details of these various policy agendas, can you set the stage for us? The EU already has some fairly ambitious legislation in the digital space, so the GDPR, which has been around for a number of years. Um, What are they trying to pass with these three new sweeping bills now?
0: Um, I I think what the EU is trying to do is double down on its so-called success with GDPR in both creating digital protections for its own citizens, but more broadly Mm -hmm. create a sort of a gold standard, global de facto standard for everyone else. And there's a realization that the current rules were created 10, 20, 30 years ago in terms of competition, you know, how online platforms work, because frankly, online platforms 30 years ago didn't exist, and Mm -hmm. things had to change. And there is a realization that You know, consumers, people, citizens are being harmed either by hate speech online, maybe a lack of competition in in how they interact with digital services, also online. And therefore, they're trying to figure out, okay, the current system is broken. How do we fix it? Mm. And we think these three pieces of legislation will at least move the ball forward in terms of what can and cannot be done.
1: And the AI Act sort of cuts across, it's sort of more horizontal in a sense, right? Like that, that will cut across all sorts of different providers and and services.
0: I would agree because AI is everything, right? So AI isn't just like it works across health, finance, social media, it's, it's everything. So that is the idea of de- describing what you can and can't do with this AI technology and then limiting what you can do to the good uses of AI and then not allowing you to do bad uses of AI.
1: And I'm wondering, it's broad and it's incredibly bureaucratic and this stuff has taken a long time um, to work its way through the legislative system, but am I right that this past year, particularly around Francis Haugen's testimony, kind of turbocharged and reinvigorated, lit a fire under legislators in the EU to actually get this stuff passed?
0: I mean, I would say Haugen's testimony reinvigorated of Washington's uh, efforts. I think Haugen coming to Brussels, which he did in, I believe, in September, October, just reconfirmed what people thought. And the word in the street within Brussels is that Haugen came with a bunch of prescriptions of what they should do. Many EU policymakers turned around and said, we are already doing that. And so I think Haugen just maybe reconfirmed existing suppositions. It didn't reinvigorate anything, at least on this side of the Atlantic.
1: So um, in, in terms of applying these rules to in all three of these areas, how do they decide who is regulated um, and included under these packages? Yeah, I think this
0: is what we call the, the protectionist provision, because a lot of American <laughs> companies think they're just picking on the uh, the Americans in Silicon Valley. So I think most of it is based on market cap and size of a user. The idea being is we, we want to allow innovation, we want to allow growth at a small level, even a medium level. But when you get super big, like like a Google, like an Apple, then you then then greater restrictions get kick in because of your you do become a so called gatekeeper at that point. I
1: love their their very technical term quote very large platform. Is that is <laughs> That's the, an, an official category?
0: <laughs> the, it's vlop v l o p is the worst acronym <laughs> of all time.
1: Okay, so let's get into what what each of these are doing a little bit. So let's start with the DSA. Um, a first draft of it was passed very recently, and it's getting a lot of attention in the media. Um so just in broad strokes, what is it trying to do?
0: The DSA um is comes down to two things. But it's focused solely on social media platforms and e-commerce players. That's all it does. It focuses on both illegal content, which is defined quite complicatedly, but let's call it just illegal content like hate speech. And then it's also looking at counterfeit goods sort of sold via the platforms that could potentially do people harm. And the idea being is that if I'm a big platform selling goods or providing space for that social media content, I am held great more responsible for that content than before. And that involves um, outside auditing, involves risk assessments. So the example that gets brought up a lot is if there was a Donald Trump-style character in Europe, he or she would potentially um, face uh, measures before t- they get to the point of say the January 6th riots in which there was a potential inflaming of tension because the risk assessments would have done been done beforehand and therefore you wouldn't reach to that level of of potential danger um so the DSA is is aimed at sort of damping down tension while also allowing people to have free speech
1: what what do you mean by the uh, that sort of risk assessment would have been done like how, how does that mechanism work?
0: Yeah, it's, it's super complicated, so forgive me. So, so what the <laughs> idea is is sort of as you go through this process, if I'm a large you know, social media company run by a millennial, for example, I would have to hypothetically, hypothetically, I would have to, Hypothetic, hypothetically. Uh, hypothetically, <laughs> would have, to um, have both um, outside auditors and internal risk assessors do an ongoing, regular assessment of where I see hot points um, coming through the pike. And what we saw with the Hagen Francis Haugen documents from inside Facebook is there's a lot of internal research going on about where are potential hotspots of hotspots of, of of complaints and conflict, and therefore that would have to be you know, mitigated, and they would have to show ways they are reducing those tensions, or if they don't do that, a regulator of some of some sort would have the right to either impose remedies or. In, no, the worst case scenario impose impose fines. So it's it's the idea of trying to get ahead of the of the issue before it becomes so inflamed it kicks off.
1: And and at what point in that um, process does a platform, if it does ever become liable for what's posted on their platforms?
0: It is liability, and I think it's 5 five or 6% fines. But, the, 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 I mean, frankly, that is at the end of the fact, right? So the whole mm. point is to, although there are rigorous blockbuster fines potentially, that is after the fact. The idea of having risk assessments and outside audits and better data access to outside researchers and, heaven forbid, journalists, is to get to those issues before they become, to get to a point where you would have to sort of impose fines.
1: Yeah, and it seems as if what's important about that approach to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that um other some other countries, Germany in particular, has taken more of kind of a an ex post approach that you 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 deal with bad things once they are said. And it seems like the EU is is taking a, an approach that a, attacks this problem in an earlier stage at sort of the incentives level and the kind of more structural um ex-ante level, if you want to put it like that. And is is that true, that they're they're trying to get at sort of the mechanisms here, not the outcomes?
0: I think ex-ante is sort of the word of the day or word of the year, because it also applies to the Digital Markets Act, right? So yeah. I think you're completely true. There is a fine balance, though, because they, they obviously still want to allow maybe not very nice content um, to be up there, mm. if it, as long as yeah. it's legal. Like there is a misinformation question which we can get to, which is sort of left in, in the ether a little bit with this. So this yeah. is solely, solely focusing on illegal content, hate speech, yeah. et cetera. And so they are trying to get at that at an earlier stage.
1: How are they defining illegal here?
0: That's left to the national uh, governments, which is you know the $64 million question, because what is maybe illegal content in Germany is maybe a- different than what is illegal in, say, Hungary, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah.
0: And frankly, that is a criticism that others, mostly the U.S. government has made, that sort of you're defining this in ways that either allow governments to impose you know, restrictions on legitimate content or, you know, conversely, you're letting too much content get through, uh, you know, and, and harming individuals. So um, I th- the the commission, European Commission, European Council, and now the Parliament are trying to figure out a way to do that. I think ex ante going ahead and trying to get ahead of this stuff is is the right way of looking at that. But the issue with the DSA for me is that, you know, it gets super complicated really quickly. And, it's a very difficult to know what is illegal based on different national government you know, prescriptions because the EU does, doesn't work as a federal state. It's 27 countries doing what they want to do, and how do you then apply a one-size-fits-all regulation when the definitions come from from the national jurisdictions?
1: You mentioned the Hungary problem here, and I think that's sort of what a lot of people would criticize the EU most acutely for in this set of, particularly the content regulation packages, Hungary and Poland are considerably more illiberal than other countries in Europe. And there's always a concern that a liberal government could use content regulation laws to suppress political speech. How are regulators thinking about Hungary and Poland?
0: I mean, it's, a, it's something I struggle with a lot, right? Because, you know, as much as, you know, I, I think regulation in this, in this sector is, is required. But but as I said before, it gets super murky very quickly. And I think part of the way is that there will be issues, that there is no doubt about that. But what do you do? Do you wait for the perfect situation or do you push ahead and do the best you can and then you know pivot when you need a pivot? And I think the way this is working out is that Hungary and Poland, frankly, are going to be an issue. The Commission and the Council and the Parliament know this, but they're not going to let that stop them from legitimately moving ahead with social media content moderation rules because, as everyone knows, from Canada to to Europe, you know, it's it's a mess out there and something has to change. And so, therefore, the European rules are by no means perfect. And there's a lot of criticism, including my own, that I would level at it, but it's better than anything else we have. So I think it's worth giving it a shot. And then if a Hungary or Poland issue comes up, which, frankly, Poland is passing its own social media law as we speak, that basically undermines the DSA completely... Um, the issue with EU rules is there are 27 countries, but EU regulation supersedes everything, and therefore you end yourself up in European Court of Justice and you know let the judges figure it out.
1: Um, one other thing on the DSA that I found intriguing was it sort of seemed at the last minute there was a debate about targeted advertising and sort of a tension between an outright ban and a real push for a complete ban on targeted ads, which would have been pretty pretty radical in many ways. Um, but landing on something a bit of a compromise. How did did that play out at the last minute?
0: Mm, So there are many people within the European Parliament that wanted an outright ban, but the Commission and Council uh, don't want that. And therefore, the way I see it panning out is that we'll have some sort of nominal restriction, particularly on political advertising, but not on the broader targeted ads that the the Parliament want because there's no consensus about that to get through the next six months of negotiations. So...
1: How different will this make the internet look in the EU? So if I if I travel to the EU and I log on to the internet, how different will it be than in the US or Canada?
0: So it's interesting. We have a couple of test cases about this that are in the last say sort of 10 years. So one is the so-called cookie directive, which basically plasters a a, a a sort of label on every website in, in Europe that says, like, are you okay for, for X website to collect my data? And you would have to say yes. Um, and the other one is the um, the right-to-be-forgotten ruling against Google, which means I can scrub my search um, for, from specific uh, points about me uh, within Europe, and, and Google has added a line of, at the end of every search box in Europe saying, you know, all this may not represent all the searches about you or about whatever you're searching. I think what will happen is that there, it will just be another level of like cookie banner or sort of label saying this is not everything that's out there. I think, you know... It won't harm or limit the Europeans' view of the internet, and it will definitely reduce some of the hate speech that's out there, and and the products on, say, Amazon that maybe you know could, could be harmful because they they are counterfeit. Um, but I don't think it's really going to materially change how the quote European internet differs from, the, say, the Canadian one.
1: Okay, let's move on to the to the DMA now and Digital Markets Act. So, if the DSA is looking at at content regulation, um, this is looking at the way companies can function as businesses. Um, so, so what is it broadly, and who will it affect?
0: Just like the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act is about updating existing rules for the twenty first century. Uh, and this, particularly when it comes to antitrust, is that everything takes too long when a company buys another company or moves into a new market, it can take five, 10 years for regulation or um, antitrust enforcers to to make a a determination that competition has been harmed. And therefore, what they're trying to do is get ahead of that, the ex-ante, like we discussed before, and that means, okay, labeling specific, very large um, online platforms, uh, that they have specific market dominance, and therefore, those specific small number of companies, mostly American, frankly, will then be limited in how they grow and expand into markets. And if they want to expand, there is a significant amount of um, regulatory oversight put on those transactions to stop company X outmuscling company Y purely because they have more dominance in a specific market.
1: How much of the DMA is just European protectionism, do you think?
0: Ah, uh, that question. Um... It's tough to say. There are obviously protectionist wins in Europe, particularly coming frankly from France, that would like it to be protectionist. But I see it less as protectionist, more... It's, I, I, this sounds silly to say, but I think it is country agnostic, but it's not agnostic in terms of the size of the company. And it just happens that the size of the company are American and potentially, if it depending on how the definitions go, Chinese.
1: And so, is, is the is the European tech sector championing this? Like, is this something that's in part coming from the bottom up in terms of scaling companies in Europe, asking for more support here?
0: I mean, you get the antitrust complaints, say from Spotify, the Swedish streaming service, right? But you know, against Apple, and they're, they're, they are supportive, but they are somewhat concerned about the potential impact on innovation. But right now, there are no tech companies in Europe worth tens of billions of dollars, hundred if not trillions of dollars like the American one. So therefore it's it's not it's not really their problem right now. So I think for them they see it as a potential opportunity. But then the question I always ask is, again I sound like a tech lobbyist here, is like how how much regulation boosts innovation elsewhere? And sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think that's an open question.
1: Let's move on here to the third piece of this, which which you've argued is going to be really consequential over the next year, which is the AI Act. Um, so, so what is it trying
0: to do? So the AI Act, um, which is frankly much delayed, is trying to create as sort the of prescriptive... Do do and don't playbook for what you can do with whatever you consider AI. So AI can be lots of things. As, as you, <laughs> there's a
1: lot of ambiguity in that <laughs> description.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, the thing that's the problem with it, right? And that's why it's, yeah. it's that's why it's been delayed. So it's trying to say there are some certain high risk use cases of AI, like social scoring, like the Chinese are using, would be a prime example. Which they just say that should not be allowed. And I mean, frankly, all Western governments, at least on paper, say that's that's true. I
1: think this is one of the most interesting a- aspects of the AI Act is like differentiation
0: of harm, right? And
1: the the prohibited activities are ones that are just going to be outright banned. And so, so, what's included in that first prohibited category?
0: So, I mean, a lot of it is is about sort of the uses of AI for for sort of harmful. And d- destructive—if that's the way, right way to put it—activity a- mostly from government. So the one again, I we re- use it because it is so clear is social scoring. You can't use algorithms by government to sort of you know score your population. You know, c- can companies do that? Well, yeah, you can. So the the, the AI Act doesn't really touch on that yet either. Well, that's
1: interesting. So it's more for government use as opposed to private sector at the moment.
0: Exactly. And the reason why I think it's important is that the AI Act or the Frankly, if it gets you know put forward this year, it will be a miracle. But the reason why it's important this year is because it already has affected the UNESCO's AI ethics declaration from late last year. It's integral to the EU-US Trade and Tech Council discussions on um, algorithmic and AI-focused uh, policymaking. And so, therefore, they, just the, the fact that it's there and it's been put forward by the Commission – is is enough to really galvanize this discussion about what is good and what is bad about AI and the policymaking around AI. So for me, it's not about the AI Act itself. It's more that that has kickstarted a conversation about the ethics of AI, the policymaking of AI, and what legislation may or may not be required on AI. That's why it's important.
1: So as you mentioned, some of these use cases are going to be completely prohibited. But there's also going to be a high-risk category, things that aren't totally banned but will be heavily scrutinized. What kinds of things do they put in that category?
0: So, I mean, again, again, as you say, it's it's high risk in terms of, like, you can use it, but you need to be very clear and there's a re- regulation um, that stands over it, right? So it, a lot of it comes down to the, um, the use of algorithms, particularly when it comes to sort of um, engagement in social media and things like that, 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 that may fall into this, this category in terms of it could potentially, potentially, create high risk and therefore you need to take other specific steps and precautions in terms of, you know, data access and things like that to to make sure that you're not sort of skewing people down a rabbit hole of, of extremism or something like that.
1: So if you were to look ahead over the next year, what do you think the fate of these three big initiatives are? Where will we be um, in a year from now with all three of them?
0: So so the slam dunk is DMA. Um, the French want to get that done uh, by March 29th before the French election. So I would suggest that maybe not by March, but definitely by May should be, should be done. The DSA, um, I mean, I'm told um, that there is broad agreement excluding the advertising stuff. Um, but that stuff, I, I mean, I've done this before, and this is not my this is not my first trialogue. So I, I would think that that gets pushed back to the second half of the year where the Czech the Czech Republic takes over the EU six-month rotating presidency. So I would suggest by September, October, you probably get the DSA done. Um, and by done, I I mean they then have two years to implement it international law. So none of this is gonna happen before 2024. With the um AI Act. Again, that's the that's the wild card. I, I think you may get movement within the parliament on their version of it by the fall. But again, I think for me, the AI Act is, is important for that d- debate discussion that it's kicked off, um, frankly, across the Atlantic in terms of what we should do with the AI. So I think the, the AI Act itself is going to get killed in, in minutiae, but the, the, it's kicked off this discussion.
1: How are the platforms, or how have they been responding to all of this?
0: What I think is interesting is that they've shifted. So back in 2020, when the commission was putting these proposals forward, all the attention was focused on the DMA, because it was an existential threat to their ability to expand into new markets. And all the, they they kind of went, okay, the DSA is not good for them, but we can live with illegal content, but we're fine. Let's focus on DMA. What's happened is, as the targeted advertising discussion has come into the DSA um, legislative discussion. That shifted. So they've gone, okay, fine, the DMA, its gatekeepers, we're going to be included, you know, but the DSA is now an essential, existential threat to their business because it focuses specifically on, some of it focuses on on targeted ads. And so in the last, say, three or four months, that shifted. The lobbying has shifted and gone to 180 in terms of now everything's about the DSA and how, you know, SMEs need... Ads to survive, and that, that that that's the discussion being had. Whereas for DMA, because there's broad consensus between the, you know the Commission, Council, and Parliament of what should happen, there's not much wiggle, wiggle room for the for the big tech companies to to operate.
1: That's interesting. So I mean, in that sense, DSA may be backdooring various competition policies that were previously thought to exist under the DMA.
0: Yes, because it comes down to the, the, the big. $64 million question is around ads and what ads will be banned, limited, reduced, whatever the right adjective is to, to use. And I think that's where the, the real debate and frankly why I think the finalization of that the DSA will, will extend into the fall this year because of that hardcore lobbying effort because there is no consensus at EU policymaking level about what should happen with ads. And therefore that will, that, that will just get delayed, I think.
1: I wonder if, I mean, the, the real critique of GDPR was it, it was sort of started being designed 10 years ago and, and wasn't fully up to date by the time it even got launched. And I wonder with the way the internet seems to be going potentially towards more subscription based models and potentially more decentralization. I wonder if the focus on ads will also seem out of date when it's actually implemented.
0: I mean that's the the critique of all legislation, isn't it? That it sort of it fights the last war, not the 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 next war. Um, I mean, there, there is no discussion right now in any policymaker circles really about Web three and decentralization. So I think you're right, I, but I don't think that's just a criticism of the Europeans. I think that's a criticism of all digital policymaking. Yeah.
1: You mentioned with the AI Act, and I, I agree with you that like changing the global conversation is a big part of what the consequence of EU policy in. In this whole space has been it certainly had a huge effect um in canada it feels to me like that's really a lot of what's going on here is the eu is pushing a conversation globally um, and, and enabling a space almost for other countries to act here too
0: i think there were there were two two levels to this which i'm frankly struggling and again i i'm a you know i'm a Quite very privileged, uh, you know, journalist sitting in 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 Western Europe, so you know I can say this. But I think the way the Europeans are doing this is is great for the West, but not so great for the global South because I think it gives, like, say, the Canadians, the Australians, the Japanese, the South Koreans, even dare I say the Americans, a playbook which they can pick and choose from. Not everything, because the Europeans aren't perfect, but they can offer, say, the Canadians on your new privacy legislation, you know, a template of what you should and shouldn't do. So that I think is is useful. But I think the regulatory muscle needed to do this properly is out of depth for most of the developing world. Not because they don't have the the skills, it's because there are resources available that you need that just don't exist in a, I don't know, a, a Colombia or even a South Africa where they are more advanced on this stuff. And therefore, my concern is you, we're creating a two-tiered system where there are digital rules led by Europe. For Western countries that provide privacy protections and antitrust oversight and content rules, where another internet is forming in other parts of the world, where they try and mimic what Europe is is doing, but don't have either the, the regulatory muscle, the resources um, to, to to do it properly, or like we've seen in Russia, they've morphed it to use. The European playbook for their own purposes, and therefore limit free speech, limit competition in the in the guise of digital policymaking, but done for authoritarian aims. And therefore, that's my concern as we enter this year: is sort of that that two level, the, the two track is is being formed quite quickly.
1: So, just to close here, France's Minister of Digital Economy Cedric O oh, has said that the DSA and the DMA are quote two of the most important texts in the history of the internet. Is that big a deal?
0: I mean, he would say that because his job is to get those over the line by June. Right? So he, he, he would say that. Um, I, I Again, without being too cynical, I, I think both could make a big difference in terms of the, everyone, both in Europe and elsewhere, access to digital services and how we interact online. Do I think it's going to be the panacea that the Europeans think? No, I do not. Do I think hate speech will continue? It will. Will gatekeeping companies like if google and apple still dominate markets yes they will but i but i think it's also a realization that no law is perfect but some law is better than nothing and i'm looking at you washington dc with your lack of legislation so i'm i i I think it's worth it's worth a crack as we would say here in in london uh, britain to to give it a shot but don't expect miracles
1: well look there's a ton of moving pieces here and it's Hard for anybody to follow, but I'm sure glad you are. And uh, thanks for talking to us about it.
0: I'm happy to be here.
1: That was my conversation with Mark Scott. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Rujea. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.